This episode is brought to you by The Profit Line. Now, hopefully you guys recognize that I'm quite selective about the sponsors that I choose to partner with, but The Profit Line might just be in a league of its own, given that I was a customer of theirs for seven consecutive years while running my own company. The Profit Line is a boutique finance and accounting firm that provides a wide range of accounting services to small and medium-sized businesses, generating anywhere between 5 to $50 million in revenue or so. On a fractional outsource basis, they will do all of your bookkeeping, bank reconciliations, month-end accruals, tax compliance, financial statement preparation, and they'll work hand-in-hand with your auditors, among countless other things. When I purchased my business, I noticed that the books were a total mess. The company's accounting wasn't compliant with GAAP, they were overly complex, and they just didn't work for the company's new reality, which suddenly included auditors, a bank, investors, and a board. Because of this, I brought in the profit line within my first month or so as a CEO. And fast forward to seven years later, they were still there to help us get our books ready for an exit. We used them when we had no finance and accounting department to speak of and continued to work with them even as we grew our finance team to four people, including a CFO. For those of you currently running a business, visit theprofitline.com to learn more about how they may be able to help you. For those of you currently evaluating a target to acquire, the Profit Line also offers a high-level, affordable overview of a target company's current accounting systems, processes, and environment. This analysis can be used in conjunction with your QOV project, or it can be done in advance of it to ensure that there are no large red flags before you start spending the big bucks. Again, that's theprofitline.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of In the Trenches. I am your host, Steve Davitkos. Today, I am joined by Michael Girdley, an entrepreneur and investor who has spent the past 30 years building a personal holding company, boasting over $100 million in annual revenue comprised of 12 businesses across software, technology, consumer retail, and education, among others. In case you can't tell by the title of today's episodes, we're going to be covering all things related to holding companies, or holdcos for short. Outside of managing his own holdco, Michael is deeply involved in the North American SMB ecosystem. He co-hosts Acquisitions Anonymous, a podcast that reaches over 10,000 listeners weekly, where he and his co-hosts dissect real businesses currently up for sale. He also offers two online courses, educating prospective entrepreneurs on the holding company model, as well as best practices on how to find and acquire a great small business. He is also an active investor in small and medium-sized software companies through another holding company, this one called Dura Software, that invests in mission-critical B2B software companies spanning multiple niches. Before I conclude, let me again provide you with a friendly reminder that I am an active investor in North American search funds and the companies that they acquire. So if you're raising a search fund or find yourself with an equity gap, I'd love to speak with you. With that said, please enjoy my conversation today with Michael Girdley. Michael Girdley, welcome to the show. Excited to be here. 
Well, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I listen to your podcast, uh, Acquisitions Anonymous, uh, regularly. So anybody who's listening to this should absolutely be sure to check it out. And Michael, you are a pretty prominent voice in the small and medium-sized business ecosystem. So I had a really hard time trying to narrow down what to ask you because I feel like I could talk to you for a week if you gave me that much of your time. <laughs> um, but where I really want to drill down with you today is on this concept of holding companies. And one of the reasons why I wanted to specifically talk about holding companies with you is because of the explosion in interest that I've seen from youngish entrepreneurs looking at non-traditional ways to basically build up an entrepreneurial career for themselves. And I've seen holding companies pop up way more over the past year or two than I had in the preceding five years. So that's something that we're going to get to. Before we do that, um, maybe it, it's more logical to start with uh, Michael Girdley 101. So maybe we can just start by having you tell us a bit more about yourself, your career, and what has led you to what you are doing today. Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks. Um, yeah, so my life story starts here in Texas, uh, in San Antonio. I grew up here. Um, I was always a computer kid. I got my first computer when I was 12. It was an Apple IIe. Uh, I used it until I broke the keys on it, um, which was great. And back then, my parents, they sacrificed so much. Uh, they spent $3,500 back in the 80s to buy a computer. That's like fourteen dollars or $15,000 now. Just an incredible investment in me, and it transformed my life to where you know I went to high school at a school that had amazing computer science programs, and I went to college and got as far away from Texas as possible for college and studied computer science there. And then after graduation started really the first phase of my career, which was going to work for other people. I went out to the Bay Area and moved to San Francisco and worked uh, at software companies for six different years and eventually realized I was never going to be a very good programmer and I actually didn't like it that much. Uh, so I eventually moved into the closer to the business and marketing side of things, which I'd always liked more, um, just coming from a family of entrepreneurs. And after that stint of working for other people, uh, I ended up moving back to San Antonio. My wife and I uh, wanted to go someplace warm. And at the time, my father wanted to retire uh, from our family business. So that was my first CEO job was running our family fireworks business for 11 years uh, as the full-time CEO. And then eventually I started to realize I didn't want to just run one company. I loved creating the concept of creating businesses. And I started a second business and I was CEO of that for a bit and then really transitioned into what I do now, which is spend my time working on businesses rather than in them. So I'm not a CEO of anything. I own a, a holding company that I'm the CEO of that holding company, but I only have one employee and she's chief of staff and everybody else uh, are CEOs that run the businesses that I own significant stakes in that I've either acquired or created or incubated. Um, and I'm up to a dozen different businesses now that I sit on the boards of and that's what I spend my days doing. So from computer scientist to hold co-entrepreneur, um, maybe we can start with, for those who may be unaware, what is a holding company? And related to that, in what ways does a holding company differ from, let's say, a private equity firm, which also owns portfolios of individual operating companies? Yeah, so there's there's different flavors of hold co's, but generally a holding company is defined as one that owns stakes in other businesses, um, and that's its primary job. 
Um, so, you know, for example, the, the most classic one that people know of is Berkshire Hathaway, uh, which is um, Warren Buffett's company that he started with Charlie Munger 60, 70 years ago now, I guess, is how long they've been at it. Um, and that is, you know, what's called a heterogeneous holding company, which is a holding company that's a bunch of different um, a bunch of different types of assets that are ideally profitable and, and cash flowing for them. And then there are other types of holding companies as well. There's um, things that are roll-ups of, of, say, people that have gone and built a holding company that owns a whole bunch of, say, KFC franchises, for example. That's, that's a type of holding company. Uh, then there are holding companies that buy kind of similar types of assets like software companies. Um, I'm involved in one of those that has gotten pretty big over the past few years. And, and primarily, though, it's this idea that the holding company is just a company that owns uh, other businesses, and that's its its primary function. So you mentioned you've got 12 companies in your hold co. Is, is there any connective tissue between those 12? So is it defined by industry? Is it defined by company size? Or is it all over the map, purposely so, in both of those regards? Like, how how how, how would you characterize your specific holding company and the assets contained within it? Yeah, I very much have a, a the kind of the first type, the Berkshire Hathaway style of um, a very lightweight holding company that is heterogeneous of the different types of assets I'm in. So it's anything from, you know, a fireworks business to a software business to now a media business to a CEO peer network um, and all things that have been things that I felt like I had an opportunity to go pursue uh, and, and be in those businesses. Um, and then, you know, the, the actual structure of what we do from a headquarters standpoint is very light. Um, we don't have much in the way of centralization or support or any kind of cross, um, you know, kind of contamination between them. Um, because I like, uh, I, d I don't want to have to manage all that stuff. So I make them all very independent, uh, atomic entities. And I guess, um, just to get into your head a little bit, I mean, why did you choose to specifically build out a holding company as opposed to pursuing other entrepreneurial models? So for example, the startup playbook where you start your own company from scratch, the ETA playbook where you buy an existing company and subsequently operate it. Um, you've chosen a different playbook and a different path towards an entrepreneurial career. What specifically appealed to you about this option that maybe you couldn't get with the other two options? I, for me, it's all of these choices that, you know, as, as privileged kind of capable people uh, in the Western, you know, North, Northern Hemisphere uh, in North America, we, we often get to choose what kind of lifestyle we want to live and then use that as a way to shape the career we're going to have. And for me, the CEO of a holding company, my day-to-day -day job is incredibly different from what the day-to-day -day job of being a CEO of a single business is. And as I started to learn about what a holding company CEO does, I realized that's the life that inspired me, that aligned with my core values and aligned with the things that gave me a lot of joy to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, you know, I think it's it's a mistake for a lot of people to think that the vision of what they want to have is what's going to drive their life. And I did the opposite. I started to realize the life I wanted to live was the activities I get to do all day, every day now. And so um, anyway, that's that's why I do this compared to kind of the typical, you know, own and operate a single business or go buy one that you're going to run. Like that's right for other people. It's not right for me. 
So I mentioned at the outset that hold codes, at least anecdotally from my perspective, they seem to have increased in popularity quite drastically over the past couple of years. I guess two-part question for you. A, are you seeing the same thing? And B, why do you think we've seen all of the uh, recent interests that we have? Yeah, I, I definitely seeing the same thing. Um, and I think a lot of it comes from social media and Twitter and LinkedIn. I think people really love writing about this model. And, and for a lot of people, it's very aspirational. Uh, I do think there's a level of people coming at it for the wrong reason. Like I talked about the reason I want to be in the Holco business and the Holco game is because it gives me joy. I think there's a lot of people that are coming at it now because it seems cool and like, oh, look, you know, I get to be Warren Buffett. And, and you know, the thing we don't talk about a lot with Warren Buffett is like he and Charlie Munger, who are his two partners in Berkshire Hathaway, like they are masters of PR, <laughs> masters. Like you look at the whole thing they've put together and the whole narrative they tell about not working that hard and, you know, eating all shucks kind of stuff. Like that's not the reality of what it really takes to put together a hold co. Like it is a lot of freaking work. Um, and Warren and Charlie don't really talk about how for their first 15 years, like they were using a ton of leverage and hustling and getting in there and getting their hands dirty, like to get, to get to where they were way ahead of the game, like took a lot of that. And I, so I think there's been some misconceptions about it and some people, it kind of feels like when people, you know, when they got into VC, remember when everybody was starting a VC fund like six or seven years ago, because it was mm -hmm. cool and everybody was doing it. It kind of feels like the same thing now. And I don't, I don't mean to poop on hold codes. It's the right thing for a lot of people, including myself, but it's also, I see people doing it for the wrong reason. So would you expect, as best as you can tell, interest in hold codes among budding entrepreneurs, let's say three years from now, would you would you suspect that interest in hold codes will be as high as it is three years from now relative to today? Or do you think it's kind of being over-indexed and as a result, it'll kind of return back to uh, a state resembling normal three to five years from now? Uh, I think we're pretty close to peak. Yeah. Okay. By the way, I have a Holdco course where I like took everything I've learned about Holdcos for like 20 years. And like, I shouldn't, I should be out here promoting Holdcos and saying they're going to keep growing. But like, anyway, I would much rather, uh, I'd much rather be honest with people than to make more money. So anyway, yeah. buy my course. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate your honesty. So I guess um, you, you talked about some of the reasons that compelled you towards this model of entrepreneurship relative to the others. Um, many people listening to this are aspiring entrepreneurs who may be considering each of these three op, um, entrepreneurial avenues. So again, um, startup, so founding a business from scratch, entrepreneurship through acquisition, buying a company um, that presumably has 10 to 20 years of history and operating it, or a hold co as you've described it. As this entrepreneur is considering which of these three avenues might be better for her, like what are some of the questions that you think she should ask of herself to better inform the decision of what model might be a better fit for her personality, values, et cetera? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's something I put in my hold cool course when we built it last year um, was really encouraging people to think about the activities of what a hold co entrepreneur or what an entrepreneurship through acquisition entrepreneur uh, or what somebody founding a company from scratch, like understand what are those day-to-day -day activities and visit with people who have done these type of things or listen to interviews with people like me who could talk about like what a hold code 
CEO does all day, understand those activities and then make your decision on what you're going to go after based on those activities. Like which of those activities are going to give you the most joy and the most passion. And I think if you, as an individual, start with understanding what you're going to be asked to do all day, then you work your way towards then deciding what path you're going to take. That's much healthier than deciding, oh, this one's cool or, you know, my mom thinks I should do this other one. And, you know, I learned this lesson because I went through it with venture capital. Like I raised a handful of venture capital funds. I, I spent a number of years uh, as, as part of my whole co-journey, like getting into VC. And I discovered I really didn't enjoy the activities of VC. Like it's not that much fun for me. Like I enjoy much more what I'm doing now. And so, you know, I think that's where I would encourage people, like understand what the activities are and then pick which one's going to be right for you. And if you, once you understand that, like you can't go wrong creating a career you're going to be happy with if you're doing activities that like really excite you. So when I speak to aspiring entrepreneurs at the risk of speaking too generally, a lot of folks often classify themselves in one of two buckets, um, kind of the investor types, those who are most interested in the investing part of this equation and the operator types, those who are most interested in getting their hands dirty and becoming operators. On the surface, it feels to me, but please correct me if I'm wrong. It feels to me like hold co-entrepreneurs are likely more like have the investor orientation. So I ask you a bit of a strange question because you're both, you're both an investor and an operator, but if you had to pick one, which one do you think best describes you? And how do you think that should inform the decision of this aspiring entrepreneur who's, who's kicking tires on the idea of a hold co? Yeah, I, I understand we agree with you. And I try to tweet about this idea of like, I call them operators and allocators. And if you look at them, they're like, it's like, you know, you see those pictures of where the two ocean currents like meet each other, but stay separate, like the East, you know, the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean meet and they're like very different. Like they actually don't meet on social media very much. Like when allocators read my stuff, they realize very quickly, I'm much more in the operator bucket, right? Operators are people who go out and make stuff happen. Uh, they're the man in the arena, so to speak. And then you have the allocators who are, you know, the guys placing bets in the stands, right? And there's nothing wrong with either one of those lifestyle choices, but I agree with you. Like they're totally different. Um, based on my experience in social media and what I do every day, I feel like I'm in the 75 to 80% operator bucket and the rest is allocator. So I feel like hmm. I can bridge a bit, but ultimately like part of what I didn't like about VC and part of what I don't like about public market investing and all that kind of stuff is like, I want to get in there and have an impact um, and make my world a better place. And when you're an allocator, you never directly do that. It's always indirectly at most. And so, you know, I, I totally put myself in the operator bucket and I think you're, you're hitting on the next point, which is a lot of people get confused thinking that they could go live straight away the Warren Buffett lifestyle where it's just like, oh, I just sit back and collect checks and go to Dairy Queen on Tuesdays. And like they forget all that operator stuff those guys had to do to get to this place. And um, so, you know, that may be part of why I'm kind of not as bullish as I should be about the future of holding companies. It's just a lot of these people like they're going to get really surprised that it's not just sitting back collecting checks. Right, right. So you mentioned you have 12 companies spanning multiple different industries. So if, if your holding company isn't vertically specific, which it sounds like it isn't, I guess, can you walk us through the benefits to portfolio companies of being housed within a hold co? Like what, what additional synergies or sources of value is created for them 
uh, by virtue of being all owned by a hold co. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, they, they're my company, so they have no choice. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's the first answer. Uh, but look, I think there's, uh, there is a lot of things in my case that are beneficial to these companies. So number one, like I'm spending my days coaching and helping CEOs and coaching, and helping the, the companies uh, through good times and bad, like I'm learning things and I'm able to cross pollinate those across the groups. Um, I'm able to see when there are times that they have a candidate who's maybe not a fit in one company and can go work at another one. Or, you know, one company was recently downsizing and we took a great person from there and we moved her over to a company that's growing. So there's that kind of cross-pollination that can happen. There's, um, you know, a level of me learning things and I can help that with other stuff. And then recently we've started to create mechanisms in which the folks can have connections that don't involve me. So for example, uh, in November, we had um, my very first kind of portfolio conference and I hate the word portfolio, but it was just like all the companies and the leadership got together and we brought all the C-level people in and everybody brought issues that they were dealing with and we like processed those as a group. Um, so we're doing that kind of stuff as well to create kind of the benefit of being part of the network of people I'm involved in. So, you know, those are all there. Um, and then I have other opinions about all that stuff, but yeah, that's the, those are basically a lot of things. And then lastly, if uh, if I'm able to have income in companies that are you know a variety of those things, in theory, the whole portfolio is going to be more resilient, right? Because um, it's very different compared to just having and being all in on just owning one business. Mm -hmm. So, how do you sell a business owner on the merits of selling to a hold co outside of the price that you can pay? Let's consider capital a commodity that substantially anybody can can offer to sellers. So, a search fund might say, "Hey, I'm an individual operator. I don't have a portfolio. I'm betting the next ten years of my life and career on continuing the legacy that you've built." A private equity firm might say, "Hey, we're going to allow you to roll X percent of your economics." grow this thing by 10x and you'll actually make more money on the second bite of the apple than the first. And hey, we've got outsourced recruiters and all these accountants and lawyers and folks who can help you. On the kind of softer or non-quantitative side, what is the value proposition that you offer to sellers of businesses that they find to be particularly compelling? Yeah. Well, I think I think there's opportunities around um you know, taking care of their legacy, um, them knowing the way you're going to treat the business, I think is definitely there. Um, there are, uh, I think, ways of, well, no, I think those, I mean, for me personally, those are the big ones. Um, other people who are acquiring, there are a lot of the things that you talked about um, as ways that you can see a benefit from the whole thing. You know, one of the companies that I'm deeply involved in is a, a software hold co called Dura Software. We started that in 2017. And, you know, part of their pitch to software sellers is, you know, since we're a permanent hold model, they know we're going to take care of their teams and we have a track record of doing that and their legacy. So, you know, a lot of that also kind of plays in and it really is just situation by situation. For me, a lot of it is like, it's me. Um, you know, people know they get to work with me and I'm pretty transparent about who I am and what's important to me. Mm -hmm. And how do you think about control? Are you buying hundred percent of these businesses, majority stakes only? Do you do any minority stakes? So I guess, what is your stance on the idea of control and how does that stance compare to like the quote unquote hold co average stance on the concept of control? 
Yeah. Um, well, and for full transparency, when a, since asset prices went crazy four or five years ago, I've been doing a lot more incubation of companies than I have been acquiring them. Like it to me, it you know, the last handful of companies that are are in my whole co are ones that you know I've started from scratch. Um, you know, I have been part of buying a bunch uh, as part of the software stuff, and I sold a company last year. Um, but I've been doing a lot more incubation also because I really like that. I think that's another way to create hold cos. Um, but, you know, in terms of uh, I just totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> so, well, we're talking about how you guys think about control and how that compares oh. to how most other hold cos think about control. If there's a difference at all between the two. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, the older I'm getting, the more I like control. Um, you know, it's because. Uh, I can have the most impact and ultimately like it, that makes me happier. Uh, at one point I, I sat down with my business coach and I went through all the stuff I'm involved in. And he said, do you notice a pattern here? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, look at all the stuff you're unhappy with going on in your life. It's stuff that you can't make change and you don't control it. And I was like, oh, it's really, that's really impactful. So these days I really try to have control. Uh, that's not always, you know, uh, a for sure thing that I can always make happen, but I think um, that's my model and and I like it better. And it's kind of that operator mindset I think that we talked about before. Um, look, I think I think by and large most of the whole co models I'm seeing these days want to have control. Um, they want to be able to impact changes on things um, when they want to, and um, yeah, that's that seems to be more than normal compared to maybe maybe in days past. So how do you how do you balance the push and the pull of industry spe specialization versus the potential benefits of diversification? So for example, like uh, the most you know famous or well known vertically oriented hold co of which I'm aware would be Constellation Software. Mm -hmm. They buy God knows how many software companies and they bring a a, a sort of playbook to those software companies, which eventually kind of creates value in that they're very familiar with the business model. And like you said, that by far the best known horizontal hold co is Berkshire. Um, and I can see benefits to industry specificity and I can see benefits to industry diversification. How have you thought about the push and the pull of both of those strategies? And in your experience, which one has proven itself to be more valuable over the years? Uh, I think they could both work. I mean, I'm not trying to duck your question, but if you look at it, the way people should put together hold codes and structure them and finance them should be in response to the market opportunity that they see, you know, and the the Warren Buffett horizontal hold co of, of um, heterogeneous assets. Well, they went out and they discovered, you know, as they were buying these things over the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. Like they are, you know, they had an opportunity to go by the railroads. Well, you know, when the guys putting together Constellation were putting together Constellation, um, the software, you know, behemoth, uh, the, uh, well, the railroads had already been bought. <laughs> There's not any more railroads left. And so they created a structure, I think, that played very well towards the software market. So that's what I tell people. It's really about structuring your whole co in a way that works best for the type of assets you're going to have and not starting with the structure and then trying to fit it to a market. Mm -hmm. 
Um, a mutual friend of ours, Brent Bishore, uh, has this famous line. I'm sure I'm going to butcher it. So apologies, Brent, if you're listening to this. But he said, every business has the everything tastes like chicken layer of business, which is to say, despite the specific widget that you're selling, every CEO has to deal with culture and incentives and hiring and firing and all of the things that are you know, completely independent of the widget that you are selling. Um I guess, is that your observation? Do you find that you can create similar types of value with a fireworks company as a software company? Obviously, there's some percentage that's specific to fireworks retailing and software, but um, is is a greater share of the pie that everything tastes like chicken layer of the business in your experience? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And what I've actually done in my whole go is go and standardize the systems that people will use to do the taste like chicken layer. Um, so everything from strategy and, and, you know, visioning for the business to how do we do, you know, our, our organization, you know, like how do we structure ourselves to, you know, how do we do sales? How do we do hiring? Um, all that stuff I've standardized. And for me, that's made it immensely powerful because um, I know that I can go out and have gone out in the world and found the best of breed for these systems. And then everybody uses them. So there's a level of standardization that that makes my job easier as well. But yeah, that, that's 100% right. Whether whether you're in, um, you know, in finance or whether you're in, you know, a, a 3PL in Ohio, like you still got to hire good people and you still got to run team meetings. Like none of that's very different. So 100% agree with Brent in that, in that regard. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is more just out of personal curiosity, but how does one effectively spread their time across 12 completely different operating companies? I mean, obviously there's only 24 hours in a day. There's only one Michael Girdley to go around. I mean, can you just talk, talk us through what are some of the major mistakes that you've made over the years with respect to delegation and time allocation? And what have you learned uh, in both of those regards over the years that listeners might benefit from? Yeah, I've made a lot of mistakes. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think a very common one from a hold co perspective is uh, it's very easy, especially when you're going from one company to two, to not get out of the way of your designated CEO or person that you put in charge of the business, whatever their title might be. Um, I've hired CEOs in the past and then I looked up and I was like, oh, I'm doing their job for them. And uh, that was something I had to learn really quickly um, because they were unhappy. I was unhappy. The company was confused. Um, everybody was making less money and ineffective. So, you know, not getting out of their way was was definitely something um, that that I've learned how, learned how to do much better. Um, and it's even simple stuff that goes with that. Like if you're going to own a, a company uh, and you want somebody else to really be the CEO, like get the hell out of their office. Like I don't go, you know, I office by myself. I used to office with a port co and it was just a mess. Cause I would be like, you know, pulled into stuff I shouldn't be in. And everybody was confused, like why I was around, like just, just, it wasn't good. Um, at the same thing, same time, I've made the opposite mistake, like not um, seeing things that were going to be a problem and being too slow to act on them. And some of that is just experience and, and feeling that you have to get over time, you know, watching companies and feeling their ebb and flow and the vibe and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's the other end of the spectrum. And I don't know a way to learn that stuff other than just, you know, doing your best and being introspective when you make mistakes and doing better the next time and getting a feel for it over time. But, you know, I've made mistakes in, in both 
ends of the spectrum there. The easier one to fix is the getting the hell out of the way because you just rip off the Band-Aid and let the CEO be a CEO and, mm -hmm. uh, and go from there. But yeah, I would say those are the two big ones for sure. This episode is brought to you by Oberly Risk Strategies. Now, some of you likely know Oberly is the insurance brokerage and insurance diligence provider for the search fund community and has been trusted by search investors, lenders, searchers, and CEOs for over a decade now. The company is led by August Felker, himself a two-time successful searcher, both within the funded and self-funded models. He personally runs Oberly's dedicated search fund practice that works with searchers across the entire diligence, purchase, and post-close process. Their due diligence offering, which is 100% free of charge, by the way, will assess the pros and cons of your target company's insurance program and will summarize any potential coverage gaps, the pro forma insurance pricing, and the program structure changes needed for closing. At or shortly after closing, they will then execute on all of those findings on your behalf. In nine out of every 10 client engagements, they're able to either reduce spend or improve coverage, all in such a way that the searcher or CEO can focus on other things while Oberly handles all things insurance for them. Oberly has serviced over 900 customers across a decade of operation and has an NPS score that puts them at the top of their industry. But don't take my word for it. Click on the hyperlink located within the show notes or in today's episode description, and we will gladly put you in touch with as many happy Oberly customers as you'd like. Right. Given the increased interest in hold codes as an asset class, for a lack of a better way to put it, I presume that three to five years from now, there will be a group of great hold co-entrepreneurs, there will be a group of good ones, and there will be a group of uh, less successful ones. In your experience, like what do you think will separate the great hold co-entrepreneurs from the good ones? What are they either doing or not doing to uh, attain that classification of great? Yeah, a million percent. I, I think they is, will have gotten into it and created a hold co CEO role for themselves that has them tap dancing to work every day. And I think the ones that will burn out or will quit are the ones that got into it for the wrong reason or discovered, Hey, like I really don't like all this context switching that I have to do. And I don't like that. I, by default coaching CEOs rather than bossing them around. Um, and I think a lot of those people will burn out and, and give up. Um, and that may create buying opportunities for people like me, but fundamentally, I think that that's the, the, the big distinction, like getting into this game, like know what you're getting into and then make sure you're going to truly love it. Because, you know, I think you and I both know the people that get ahead the most in life are the ones that can set these 10, 15 20, and 20 year plans and just execute on them for that long period of time and greatness in the whole co world. I mean, ultimately requires that just like it does in everything else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You mentioned the concept of hiring great CEOs and getting out of their way. I'd love to ask you a follow-up question in that regard, because the domain that I deal with um, as a search fund investor is entirely first-time CEOs, and that creates both opportunities and challenges. But broadly speaking, over the past decade or so, my eyes have truly been opened to um the art of the possible with respect to highly inexperienced CEOs that would otherwise have to work like 15 additional years to, to get the opportunity to sit in that seat. So as someone who has hired many different CEOs and presumably like all of us, you've had some good hires and some bad hires, 
What have you learned about hiring experienced CEOs versus inexperienced CEOs? And do some types of industries or business models or situations lend themselves more appropriately to one versus the other? Uh, I'm probably pretty opinionated on this. <laughs> I guess I'll give you my strong opinion. Um, I have seen little correlation between the success of inexperienced versus experienced CEOs. Um, the biggest correlation is people that have just like a very high end of the spectrum of grit. Like mm. the people in my portfolio and world who outperform, they just want it more than the next guy. And that doesn't mean they're more talented or more smarter or, or they have better skills coming in or any of that stuff. Like the ones that win every single time just have greater grit and want it more than the next few folks. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you can hire just some junior person for an established 50-person company who just wants it more. Like, they just don't have the skill set and the ability there. But ultimately, like, whether somebody's coming in having already been a CEO, whether they've been a COO someplace else, where they've been a SVP of sales somewhere and they're right on the cusp of being ready, like, none of that correlates very well to outperformance what correlated every single time is how badly do they want it and how hard are they willing to work for it and how are they going to act when adversity hits them and so you know i end up being somebody that wants to wants to hire for that much more than i care about you know whether you whether you've done it before or not so how do you test for grit like what questions do you ask that inform your opinion on the extent to which someone has the requisite levels of grit yeah, so um, I have a whole hiring system um, that is based off of a couple off-the-shelf systems, um, and one of them is uh, the top grading system, which some people mm -hmm. love and some people hate, but um, core of the top grading system is this idea of behavioral interviews that go through a candidate's um, track record, and the idea is that a candidate's track record is the best predictor of their future behavior. So people that are going to have grit coming into a new job are people who are going to have demonstrated grit uh, in the past. And um, so as I'm doing these behavioral interviews to identify folks um, who have grit, I'm just basically trying to understand their story and did they have it in the past. And uh, you can even see, do people have grit when they're in looking for their first or second job? out of college as a very young person, because if you start to dig into their high school years, their college years, their early first jobs, you start to see like what happened in each of those jobs and what did they do when they faced adversity. And it becomes very telling uh, of, of what they did then, because it's going to be exactly how they're going to keep behaving when they come and work with you. Yeah. Let's transition to software specifically. You mentioned that um, a big part of what you do is in a holding company called Dura Software. And as a former software entrepreneur myself and current software investor, this is all very close to my heart. So um, as far as I'm aware, Dura acquires small software businesses across a wide range of industries. And I guess my question for you is, what is your view as we record this in December of 2023, what's your view on the state of software valuations for microcap businesses I mean, anecdotally, the most common valuation range that I see is somewhere between three to four times ARR. And I've noticed that that has been rather stubbornly sticky. I mean, 12 to 18 months ago, the public comps are trading at like 15 times revenue. Now they're trading at five to six times revenue. But in both of those time periods, I've seen three to four times ARR as roughly kind of sort of the, the median. 
I mean, I guess the question for you is how similar or different is that from what you've been seeing on your end? And just your commentary more broadly on the state of software acquisitions in December 2023. Yeah, uh, it's it's been a wild ride over the past number of years for sure. Um, you know, I think people make a mistake to think about the software industry as being very homogeneous. Uh, there are situations for sure where three or four X ARR makes total sense. Like if you're in a, a pure SaaS business and you have amazing metrics and you're growing quickly, like all that stuff can totally underwrite. Um, you know, there's other corners of the software market that are very different, you know, where Dura plays much more is looking, you know, in, in much more kind of stable, often enterprise and B2B often requires a lot of um, people to deliver type type ends of the software market, uh, you know, subscale, you know, we're buying companies in the three to 15 million a year ARR range. And, you know, that's a different beast from bigger companies that are growing quickly or pure SaaS. And some of the companies we buy are license models as well. So, you know, valuations down in other corners of the software market can be very different and oftentimes um, considered very differently. Um, for example, I mean, we we look at things as uh, EBITDA-based buyers, right? We're not we're not going and buying uh, multiples of ARR. In fact, we'll, when we'll go through investment committee and look at stuff, a lot of times we don't even talk about multiples of ARR. Like we don't care, <laughs> like because we're we're a different type of buyer. So, you know, I think that's that's point number one. Like um, it's tough to use a lot of these rules of thumb for valuing the software market just because it's much more bigger and diverse than a lot of people give credit to. And, you know, for sellers, that creates a challenge because a lot of them will hear things like, oh, well, you know, I heard software businesses are trading for three times ARR. And it's like, well, actually it's all over the place. <laughs> it could be three yeah. times ARR. It could be three times EBITDA. It can be zero times EBITDA, depending upon, you know, your, your model of the business. So I think that's there. More broadly, what's going on in the market is uh, more and more money continues to flood in. Uh, you know, if you look at how much money just Constellation by itself is deploying, uh, last year I think it was $1.2 billion in acquisitions. And they did some big stuff, but also like that's just a lot of money to go acquire software companies. And then there's all kinds of new platforms that have sprung up. Dura is one of those um, that are serial acquirers. You know, we've acquired five going on six businesses this year. So, you know, really aggressive with the MA timeline. And then there's other folks that have also you know, receive private equity backing and stuff like that that are also out buying as well. So there's a lot of money in the space. Um, I think we're reaching a point where if your platform doesn't have an angle that you can leverage, um, you know, it, it's tough as an independent to be going and buying software businesses at this point, just based on where I'm seeing kind of multiples and the amount of capital chasing the existing kind of deals out there. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So I, I'm going to ask you a question that you have partially answered, but I think it's important to get your answer explicitly to this because I'm invested in several software-specific search funds. And I know anecdotally that many of those entrepreneurs are kind of banging their head against the wall when they hear you say, we're an EBITDA buyer, because they're probably saying to themselves, Michael, where are you finding these companies? I've been searching for two years and every, every founder wants three to four times ARR. So the question for you is, does a software company automatically command a revenue multiple just because it is a software company? And why or why not? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think the short answer from my perspective, and I may be, you know, talking about an EBITDA, an EBITDA buyer 
bias here. Um, you know, it's impossible for things to always command a revenue multiple. I mean, say the company has negative gross margins, just as an example, like there are tons of software companies out there, then there's no way they should get an EBIT or a, an ARR multiple. Um, so that would be, you know, my, my approach to it. And I think, you know, ultimately the multiple or the rule of thumb you should use to value a business is totally dependent upon what your core investment thesis is going to be. I mean, we, we are not buying, in our case, highly growthy assets. So like ARR multiples make a ton of sense when you're expecting growth to continue and possibly accelerate um, when you're going to run stuff for yield or, or, you know, cash on cash returns, like even multiples are much better as a, as a way of thinking about it. So I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but that's, that's how we think about it. No, you you are indeed answering my question, and and part part of me asking that question was selfish because I agree in that um, software companies don't necessarily command an EBITDA or pardon me a revenue multiple by virtue of the fact that they're software companies, right? Like it, it's much more nuanced than that. Um, so in a way, maybe I'm just looking for um, uh, someone else to say it. Um, I guess related to that is one of the things that I've been trying to coach my entrepreneurs on is this idea of, hey, there's more than one way to buy a software company. So in in the past, I'd say since 2019, what I've observed is what I'll call like a very um, common archetype of software transaction. This is, we're paying three to four times ARR for a company that's growing revenue at, let's say 30% a year. They're EBITDA neutral. We're paying, uh, as I said, a revenue multiple. We're putting a million dollars on the balance sheet to fund future growth. We're putting no debt on it. And that stands in reasonably stark contrast to the type of deals that folks in my ecosystem usually do, which is buying at a mid-single digit EBITDA multiple, putting leverage on it, not necessarily having to grow the company that much to hit our, our targeted return. So uh, as a result of all of that, I've been encouraging folks to look at you know, what I'll loosely refer to as different flavors of software acquisition. So for example, maybe you buy an on-premise business at an EBITDA multiple and your investment thesis converts it to a SaaS business. So at seven years from now, you sell at a revenue multiple, or maybe you find a service business that solves a business problem that ought to be solved by software instead. So you buy at a service multiple and you sell at a software multiple. Um, then there's the constellation style deal where they, you know, buy at an EBITDA multiple, have a reasonably healthy earnout, increase prices on the existing customer base, and use that high margin revenue to uh, invest in other assets. So I guess my my question to you is, from a Dura perspective, how are you guys thinking about it? I mean, I just listed I don't know three to four types of or archetypes of deals. Like, do you guys tend to pursue one of these flavors or archetypes more frequently than others? Um, well, there's other one. There's a couple other ones I think you didn't even mention. Um, like people, there's people that want to do distress deals as well, like just that are distressed for one reason or another. Um, yeah. You know, it, for us at this point, um, like Dura is not really interested in doing that kind of turnarounds. Um, it's not really interested in doing you know reshaping kind of incubation style stuff. I think that's other. Those those have gone into the like too hard. Um, too hard bucket for us. Yeah. We're much, much happier to, you know, to pay up a little bit more for something that is going to just be of a higher quality and already fixed. Cause it's just, it's just a nightmare. <laughs> you know, No offense. These businesses are often distressed for good reason, you know? So that's just our philosophy at this point. We'd rather pay up for, for quality businesses. So kind of headed, headed down the Berkshire path a bit in that way. 
But I think you bring on a good point. Like those, uh, when you see folks like us avoiding opportunities like that or um, getting out of the way of some of these these deals, um, that creates an opportunity for other people. Um, another one is like, is there hardware involved? Um, mm. Like people, people have a very homogeneous view of hardware, kind of the same way they have a homogeneous, non-nuanced view of the software market, which is not all hardware is created equal. If you ask me, would I want to be in a business that has, you know, custom PCBs and chips and all that kind of stuff? Um, like that's a really hard business because of all the atoms involved in that stuff. The the cycle time is really difficult and gross margins are usually challenged. Or you tell me, hey, like we're actually a software business uh, that just happens to have off the shelf hardware and is sold as an appliance, but it's all commodity stuff and you just call up CDW and they send it to you. Like that's very interesting to me. But you see a lot of investors acting irrationally about anything that involves hardware just because they're just a lot of time very robotic in their thinking. So I think that's where you can look and say like, okay, what are these things that other investors have passed on uh, and they're maybe being irrational by passing on them and I can go create value there. And it's, you know, the turnarounds are there, hardware is another one, customer type. I mean, there's people that um, don't want to be in B2C. I'm one of them. Like you can go find opportunities and all that kind of stuff. And so that's where I would encourage people that are looking for, for opportunities now, because look, all these bigger platforms, if for straight down the fairway stuff, like you're not going to compete with a Dura or a Constellation or somebody like that. Like, good luck. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like we're, we have too much scale for you to be competitive. You just need to find something that, that the platforms don't want to do. Another kind of caricature of a software deal that I see investors kind of thoughtlessly overlook is when service revenue is relatively high as a percentage of total revenue. Now, I guess looked at on the surface, yes, you know, contractually recurring software revenue is more structurally attractive than like time and materials type service revenue. I get that. However, in my experience, hard in is hard out, which means if it takes me six months to implement this ERP system, and as a result, I generate a lot of one-time service revenue, A, I will generally annually have more add-on service revenue, configuration, new users, et cetera. And B, that's probably reflected in my customer retention because once they become a customer for a year or two, chances are they're not going to spend another six months and another $100,000 with a new vendor. Is that anything that is that something that you see as um, under the category of investors ought not to just like uh, blindly and thoughtlessly overlook those types of uh, profiles of transactions? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And a lot of times they don't want to do it just because it's hard. Um, and that's where I think there's opportunity if you're a searcher that's willing to take on a hard project. Um, and there's a lot of really great businesses that are super services heavy. And, and you look at it, a lot of these big enterprise software companies have big enterprise services arms as part of it. IBM is kind of the classic example, though. Um, that They were maybe more of a, a better example 20 years ago. But um, you know, and I think another one there of uh, a business that's actually turned into an enormous software business is McKinsey. I mean, people don't talk about how much they've acquired all these pieces of software that now they go in and do consulting engagements, which is very services heavy. And then on the back end, they sell people software subscriptions and turn them into recurring revenue. It's just a beautiful, a beautiful business. So yeah, I, I think that's another place where just because it's, it's hard and you can't fire out money as fast as private equity would want to. Like there's, you know, there's opportunities there for folks that are willing to sign up for something that, you know, everybody else is being irrational about.
Another thesis that I hear with increasing frequency is this concept of like the venture funded orphan company. Um, so much so that I wrote a blog post about it, I don't know, six to 12 months or so uh, ago or so. So for folks who might be unaware, these are companies that raised venture capital, um, but they probably fit under the category of like good business, bad capital structure. Not all of them, but but perhaps some of them. So these, these might be companies that are growing, I don't know, 10 or 15% a year, which um, pales in comparison to what a VC firm would need it to grow at in order for it to be worth their time. Uh, and perhaps these are companies that just never should have raised VC in the first place, uh, but maybe did because of how frothy the environment was in 20 and 21. So I, I did a bit of work on this and um, my conclusion was basically, this sounds good in practice and intellectually it makes sense. Um, however, in, you know, under the cold realities of the real world, this tends to be just really hard to find, really hard to execute on, particularly for an inexperienced buyer for particularly for a first time CEO. I mean, to what extent have you seen this thesis play out? To what extent are you hearing about it? And is this a thesis that is worth pursuing for a prospective, uh, acquisition entrepreneur? Uh, I was, Okay, I'll just go ahead and say it. I'm pretty dubious about the thesis. And I've there's been several times over the past five years, either myself or friends have gone out and tried to find these type of companies who are quality businesses, but they're miscapitalized and everybody wants to sell at a reasonable price. And you can get a steal of a deal and go in there and fix things up and turn it into a great business. And like, I just, A, have never succeeded in finding a company that was worth buying that like was a non-venture success. Uh, and you wanted to actually go spend a couple years of your life trying to turn one of these around and make it into a great business. And then like the second thing is like they happen every once in a while, but I'm rarely seeing announcements of people buying these things and turning them around. Like that mm -hmm. just doesn't happen. And I think my current thesis is most of these businesses that are failed venture businesses, the reason they're failed venture businesses is because they're just not actually very good businesses. <laughs> So, so, and I know people are raising money on these thesis and they're going to go buy these things, you know, at, uh, at, at fire sale prices out of the stuff. And I hear about it happening every once in a while, but like when I look at it, either they're really hard or there's just not that many of them. Um, so I'm not a big fan of the thesis. I just don't think it, I don't think it's got legs. That's my two cents. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's consistent with, with my view as well. Sounds like a good idea in theory, but in practice, it just tends to not work out for, for all the reasons that you just articulated. Um, when you and your team at Dura are evaluating a new software investment, to what extent are you considering AI in making investment decisions? And how do you guys think about whether AI is a net positive or a net negative for any given target company? I think whenever you look at buying a technology centric business or a business in general, you have to understand what's going what's going to be the future impact of tech in general. Um, for example, even if you're buying a main street business and you're totally betting it, it, the 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 main asset that you're buying there is Google listings, you have to start to think about what's going to happen to Google over the next decade or so. It's it's coming fast that you'll just ask your phone like, hey, you know. Give me, give me the best two plumbers in town and connect me to them. Um, that that's that's the way the internet is clearly going to go versus you crawling through Google Maps listings, right? Um, so you have to think about if your business is based on that, how are you going to navigate all that in the future, whether it's a software business or not? So, in general, we take a look at every single business we get into and try to understand like the level of 
like durability of it based on the technology, whether it's AI or anything else coming along um, and go from there. So in, in general, I'm, I'm in the AI is going to be like the calculator in Microsoft Word and is going to make our existing humans a lot more efficient and effective, but ultimately not replace existing jobs or existing employees for most companies. Uh, and that's generally how we're seeing it happen in the case of um, case of the software businesses we acquire and operate as well. Michael, we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything uh, that has been left unsaid in our discussion today, knowing that many of our listeners are prospective entrepreneurs, many of whom are kicking tires on the Holdco business model? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I'm, I you know I did a course on Holdco's uh, last year and. Uh, in two days from now, Wednesday, uh, the 13th of December, we're launching my second course ever, uh, which is a smaller course totally focused on uh, the modern day way to go find businesses to buy. And that's everything that I've learned over the past years of going out and doing M&A, both directly and indirectly on the seller and the buy side, like how you should actually do that now. Because the thing I've realized is a lot of the advice out there is just way antiquated. It's like, oh, go browse listings and call brokers. Well, brokers don't answer your phone calls. So like, like none of that works. So we're going to launch that on Wednesday. And uh, my team would be very happy if I promoted it like I just did. So um, we'll <laughs> announce it then. And hopefully people will buy it. It'll also be much cheaper than my whole code course, which hopefully make people happy. Uh, Michael, you are a man of many talents. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for being generous with uh, with both your time and your insights. We really appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate you, Steve. Thank you.